morning. Will you put that picture up? Yeah. I'll try to be as somber as I can because it's Lent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get heat over that. Um, if we had read the Old Testament reading this morning, the, the, the church calendar offers us Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and then the gospel every day. And if we'd have read the Old Testament reading this morning, it was in Genesis, and it's the story of uh, Noah. It's the story of Noah. And then if we'd have heard that story and then heard Psalm 25 on its heels and heard that letter from Peter and finally the gospel, you would have all, I'm sure, understood, okay, the person who put this together had a theme in mind. There was something the, the person who put this calendar together wanted us to know, something about God that this this person, like I said, who organized the calendar wants us to know. And I, I, I submit to you this morning that what is the theme or what is the central idea that runs through all four of those lessons is that um, there is an agency or a sovereignty to God. Those are big, kind of heavy words. Agency and sovereignty of God. What I mean is it's all God's. He's in control. He does it all. It's all God's. He does it all. In Genesis, we would have heard that God speaks and that God makes a covenant or a promise. God gives a sign. God rescues. In Psalm 25, we heard that God is trustworthy. God leads. God teaches. God forgives. It's a family favorite of the Beesons, and I'll tell you why at the end. Um, and in Peter's lesson, or Peter's uh, letter, he takes everything and kind of puts it in a neat package. And if you were noticing or listening, he, he talked about uh, Noah for a second. He talked about the eight people in the ark. He talked about the water that they came through. He then weaves that into our baptism and says, finally, folks, it's not the water that saves you. I wish we had a baptismal font here so I could dip my fingers in it and make noise with the water. It's not the water that saves you, Peter says. It's the action or agency of God in Christ's resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. And that brings us to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel reading this morning. I heard Corey preach. It's fun to preach behind somebody because it's amazing how many things, how many corollaries there are, how many, how many similarities there are. And, and he said lots of things that are tucked into my sermon too. He said that there were two scenes in Mark. I submit there were three scenes. I say there's the first scene, which is Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan. We heard that a lot in Advent. Remember me saying, I can't wait to get to the manger, and we kept seeming to talk about John and Jesus' baptism. The second season scene is Jesus being driven into the wilderness, and the third scene is Jesus entering Galilee, proclaiming, if you caught it, the same words that John the Baptist proclaimed. John and Jesus, they share a couple interesting things. They both proclaim the same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist says it. Jesus says it. And then, coincidentally, they both die the same way. They both die at the hands of the Roman government. Jesus' death, however, is that one perfect death that saves us. So like Corey said, and like I'm going to say, Mark wants his hearers and readers to know something about the agency or the sovereignty of God, specifically as it's manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mark wants his readers to be certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, who Jesus is and what he's doing. Who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he will do. I'm going to go quickly through Mark. In verses 9 through 11, that first scene, Jesus' baptism, the thing that should stick out to us is this is something that God is doing. This is not something that Jesus is doing or John the Baptist is doing, but this is something God is doing. And Mark points to an Old Testament proof 
that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is the beginning of Mark building Jesus' credentials. And one of the things that Mark wants his readers to know is that at the moment that Jesus is baptized, three significant signs occur that would have been to the Jewish people at the time, oh yeah, this is clearly the Messiah. Um, the, the heaven was torn open, the spirit descended on him like a dove, and finally there was a heavenly voice. The Greek here, I'm not as good at Greek as I am at Hebrew. You guys know I love to do Hebrew, but the Greek here um, actually is stronger. It's not that the Spirit descended onto him. It's that the Spirit went into him. The Spirit went into him. So these three things would have raised eyebrows for all of the people reading this or hearing this. And what they would have been thinking probably is that now Jesus is acting in the place of Israel. And for the nation that God wanted to bring about the redemption of creation, Israel, who failed. Now Jesus is acting in their place, and this is my favorite quote of the week, as the Israel reduced to one. Jesus is acting as the Israel reduced to one. So that's the beginning, and, and Mark is building this resume for Jesus. The second thing that happens, and the first time I ever noticed it, the spirit is what drives Jesus into the wilderness. The same spirit that has come in him then moves him out into the wilderness, God's agency or action again. And notice the first thing that happens after Jesus' Messiahship is declared. It's not a party like I had when I got ordained. We had a party. Oh, Gary's ordained. Let's have a party. Jesus declared the Messiah. The first thing that happens is he goes headlong, headfirst toward his adversary, straight toward the adversary. Now, it's not an equal adversary. Satan is no match for Jesus, but he is an adversary. The Alpha Course strategically places the talk about evil right after the Holy Spirit weekend. Because people come back from the Holy Spirit weekend and lots of them have their lives changed. And so the first thing that the Alpha Course wants to do is say, hey, great, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you love Jesus now more than ever, but don't forget our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the evils and the principalities of this world. And so Jesus shows us that in these two verses as he heads into the wilderness with the wild beasts and the angels. Isn't that a beautiful picture? the wild beasts and the angels. And then the end of the gospel, verses 14 and 15, uh, Mark wants us to know that the gospel message of which Jesus is incarnate. Jesus brings the gospel, but he's also the gospel. He is the good news. And Jesus' message will be known in adversity and suffering. I talk about suffering from time to time from this place. But Jesus' gospel, the gospel of good news, will be known, make no mistake, in adversity and and suffering. And then it leaves us with those dramatic lines that we heard from John the Baptist, repent and believe the good news. Well, that demands a response. Corey Kincaid said the same thing. Those words, repent and believe, demand a response. And here's the thing. It can't be half-hearted, and it can't be partial. We can't allow repentance and belief to be applied to just certain areas of our life and not the totality of our lives. They have to lay claim on us we have to give our total allegiance to God. So we come face to face with this gracious activity of God and it demands this response or it demands um, an appropriate action from humanity. And so we're left with, I thought, as I studied this week, okay, who are we gonna follow? Are we gonna follow the world? Are we gonna follow what the world tells us? This is basic, you guys probably know the answer to this. Are we gonna follow Jesus? You know, which path are we gonna choose, right? And we, we need to be aware that there are competing ideologies out there, and they're getting subtler and subtler, but they're getting more damaging. I'm going to take a huge risk, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I want to talk about an article I saw in the Post and Courier this week as a, as a means of showing you what I mean by subtle ways that 
um, I, we can be pulled off the path. And I'll say from the outset, if I had a couple come to me who wanted to talk about in vitro fertilization, I know that lots of people uh, can't conceive, and so there are scientific ways where fertilization can occur now outside the human body, and I, and I give praise to God for the way modern medicine has advanced. But in this one particular case, what the News and Courier, and specifically an ethicist, were talking about was taking a healthy nucleus from an egg of a woman and putting that, or an unhealthy, it's an unhealthy egg because the mitochondria of the nucleus is damaged. And so they remove the nucleus from that damaged egg, they put it in a healthy egg with healthy mitochondria, they fertilize it, and they put it in the body of the mother. And what you're left with are three parents and one baby. Three parents, one baby. And the ethicist, the guy who wrote the little, or was quoted in the thing, said, everything that involves reproduction causes controversy. So I'm not surprised that there's controversy about this, but I don't think it's particularly dramatic or particularly dangerous. Well, I had a million things I wanted to say to him if I could have gotten to him about, I don't think ethics is about exclusively the dangerousness of things. Ethics is much bigger. Um, his point is that over time, we'll all come to accept this and everything will be fine. And 20 years from now, like the birth control pill, we'll, we'll, it'll be part of society and there'll be nothing we can do about it. I mean, it'll be for the benefit of society, is, was his point. Well, I want to submit to you this morning that we don't have that right. That's not our right. We cannot give life. Only God gives life. Now, God uses physicians, no doubt about it. God uses medicine, no doubt about it. But I just want us to, see, when we see things like this, I want us to stop and think for a second, what's going on and, and where is the agency of God in this? We don't have that right. So that, the point of my message is, rather, how seriously do we take these promises and covenants that we say over and over again, that we respond to after the sermon, to this Savior, Jesus, who simply looks at us and says, follow me who simply looks at us and says, follow me. And we know as mature believers, some of us, that as we follow him, his spirit's poured into us, and we begin to be able to do that a little easier every week. And so I imagine maybe there's a couple of you out there right now that are saying, yeah, Gary, I want to follow. I like the graphic that you've got up there. I, I want to get on one of those tree-lined paths. I, I want to follow. I'm with you all the way. But I'm, I'm volunteering for the tea room, and I volunteer for the after-school reading program, and I'm, I'm married. My husband, my wife demands my time. I'm I have roommates. We, we have to do things. I, I exercise every day. I've got grocery shopping, doctor's appointments. We have pets. Pets take our time. My car's got to get fixed. And I'm, quite frankly, Gary, I'm exhausted about thinking of following at that level. I think I'm just going to stay kind of partially in or, or sort of in, but I, I don't know if I can give myself completely over to following Jesus. I saw it last Tuesday night at Alpha. I saw what this looks like. We it's only the second week, and how many people remember that Tom Hanks movie about baseball, A League of Their Own? He was a drunk manager, and he was forced into uh, managing a woman's team during World War II of baseball players, and at one point he loses his temper, and he begins to curse at one of the players, and she begins to cry, and Tom Hanks says one of my funniest lines, we say it in our house all the time, there's no crying in baseball, there's no crying in baseball. Well, we were at the second week of Alpha, and after the talk in the small groups, in our group and in another group, there was crying. And I wanted to go, wait, there's no crying on the second week of Alpha. We, we cry on the Holy Spirit weekend, maybe, or we cry when we're done with Alpha, but there's no crying in Alpha. And what somebody said to me was, oh, Gary, in the talk, you said this. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it must have sounded something like this. How many of us are exhausted from the penalty, power, punishment, and partition of sin? 
How many of us are physically, literally, spiritually exhausted from the penalty, power, punishment, and partition of sin? You see, the Alpha Course says, oh, those are the four, the four things that are a result of sin. And one by one, like this morning, I see some people nodding. People, people were talking in those small groups about how the penalty of sin in their life, you know, how it ripples out into a pond, how lust leads to this and it leads to that and leads to broken families and divorce. And, and they talked about that. Well, they talked about the punishment, feeling the weight of the punishment of the sin. Or worst of all, people were talking about they didn't know God. They weren't in a relationship with God, so there was that partition that was keeping them apart. And it was literally wearing them all out. They were exhausted under the penalty, the power, the punishment of sin. Well, I've got good news. I've got good news. I'm going to read a poem by Robert Frost. I don't read poems often in public, but um, makes an excellent point. The Road Not Taken. Some of you probably have memorized it in high school. It's short. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent into the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Beautiful poem, right? It's got it wrong. It's got it wrong. It hit me this week. This poem that I love about two roads diverging in the yellow wood and me choosing one has got it all wrong. I don't choose. Jesus chose. We heard Peter say it this morning. Jesus chose, left his divinity in heaven to come to earth. Jesus chose to walk on earth and be amongst sinners. Jesus chose to go to the cross. God chose to resurrect him. Jesus walked among the believers and ascended into heaven. Jesus has already chosen. All we have to do is grab his hand, to hold his hand. That's all there is to it. It's no more complicated than that. We don't stand there in front of those two beautiful paths and go, all right, today I think I'll go this way with Jesus. No, he stands there right in the middle with his hands out, looking at us with love that we can't understand. And he says, he says Linda, he says, Jim, he says, Tyler, you want to go this way? Come on. And he just reaches his hand out and takes us on our way. Jesus chose the path. And Jesus walked the path because we can't do that. Now, Psalm 25 is a favorite in our family for one reason. How many of you saw the Seinfeld episode where George and his father were selling computers out of their garage? Does everybody, anybody, somebody. Okay, George and his dad decide to go into the computer business together, and of course it's a disaster. And in the middle of the computer sales, George goes to see a counselor, and the counselor says, oh, I've got just the solution for your temper, because he kept losing his temper with his father. He says, all you need to do is say the word serenity now. Serenity now. Well, two scenes later in Seinfeld, George and his dad are screaming, Serenity now! Serenity now! You know, they can't take working with each other. Jerry leans in in one of the scenes and says to George, I don't think you're supposed to yell that. My mother, uh, 
said over and over and over again the last 25 years of her life, Lord, show me the way. When our electric bills were due, when, when it didn't look like things were going to work out in business, my mom would say, Lord, show me the way. And yes, I'll confess, even in the car, angry, leaving the IRS office, she screamed, Lord, show me the way. But I, come, I came to realize this week, it really is that simple. It is as simple as standing at, this, at these paths and taking Jesus' hand. And it's as simple as simply saying those words, Lord, show me the way. Lord, lead, Lord, I'll follow. Lead, Lord, I'll follow. So I'm going to ask Bonnie and the band to come back up. I uh, emailed her early in the week as I was putting together. I said, oh, there's that one song. I really would love us if we could sing that one song. So as we get ready to sing, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you chose the path. You chose the road less traveled, certainly. The road that only you have traveled. You lead, Lord. You act. It is your sovereignty, your agency throughout creation. Only you have the resume to do that. We follow. So now, Lord, extend your hands toward us. If we've been lightly holding your hand, strengthen our grip. If we've never held your hand, Lord, let us courageously and boldly reach our hand out towards yours. Show us the way, Lord. Amen.